Today, my guest is an expert on love. He's here to talk with us about the power of love to heal our broken hearts, our broken relationships, and our broken world. You may remember in 2018, an American preacher took the pulpit to preach at the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. For those of us who are Episcopalians, it was a moment of pride as we watched our 27th presiding bishop give an amazing sermon, reminding all of us of the power of love to make this old world a new world. Throughout his ministry, presiding Bishop Michael Curry has in fact reminded us that if it's not about love, it's not about God. He's the author of many books, one of which is Love is the Way, Holding on to Hope in Troubled Times. And we are so excited to have him here today to talk about the power of love. So Bishop Curry, thank you so much for taking time to be here today. As we get oh. started, I want to just ask you to, to kind of give us your definition or your understanding of the power of love. Mm, wow. Well, Jennifer, thank you for having me. And um, just thank you for what you're doing. Um, um, you're reaching, reaching us and reaching people and in ways that can, can, what the old songs say, help us along that pilgrim's journey. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we're, we're trying, right? We're all just le walking yeah. down this road. <laughs> One pilgrim yeah, at a that's time. That's right. <laughs> the more of us that try, the better off we are. <laughs> oh, man. You know, I mean, the, the I, I don't have an abstract notion of love. It's very concrete and fairly and pretty practical, um, which is simply genuine, active concern for the other, and I just leave it that way, as much as I have concern, a healthy concern for myself. And 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 when you put that into practice, um, that means um, as, as the prayer book says, I don't live for myself alone, um, but for you. Um, it's, 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 it's similar to what in the Southern African tradition that, that Desmond Tutu popularized Ubuntu um, um, I am because we are, um, and that, and that's for real. And you see the power of that kind of love when you consider the opposite, the, the opposite is self-centered existence that in the long run is self-destructive for the self and for everybody else. Governments don't work that way. Marriages don't work that way churches, communities, and frankly, a global civilization cannot work that way. When everybody's out for number one, um, nobody wins. That's basically subtraction and leave <laughs> nobody left. Remember the TV show Survival? Um, I don't know if it's still on, but um, <laughs> the, 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 the thesis, well, I'm giving it a little bit more credit by calling it a thesis, but the, the basics of the show was um, the winner is the person who gets everybody else kicked off the island and survives themselves. Well, that's mere survival. That's not life. That's not living. There's a profound difference between real life. I mean, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. That's not about a prosperity gospel. That's about having life as God has intended for the creatures whom he gave life in the first place. Um, and that kind of life cannot be found by unbridled, um, unenlightened self-centeredness. It can't, it won't work. It has never worked and it never will. But the kind of life 
that lives for the good and the well-being of others as well as the self. That kind of life can have meaning. That kind of life can make a difference. And that kind of life can save families, uh, communities, societies, nations, and frankly, a global community. Uh, that is the most important thing we got going for us. And I love that because I think we have so many examples in our world where we can see that love is not present and how destructive mm -hmm. it can be. And I, I know in my little world, you know, I work with families who are going through the divorce process and we yeah. certainly see that play itself out. And, and it is very true that when we're only so focused on our, our own individual needs and interests that it really can become so self-destructive. Mm -hmm. What strikes me when you're talking about this, though, is really the need for community, like love. It takes, I mean, I, I can't just go live in isolation, right? In Survivor, you win by kicking everybody off, um, but then there's nobody to love. And so as we kind of live in this world, we have to figure out ways to put the other person's needs, you know, to consider them as at least as much as we consider our own. But that can be so hard, especially oh. when people see things so differently. What advice do you have for us? Well, you know, I do think on 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 some level, um, love is a if we think of love as a spiritual practice and not so much an emotional state. I mean, I, I'm aware that there's a lot in the complex of love, but if we think of it as a practice, then we begin, to, then we have the possibility of beginning to think, now, how can I practice love practically? And when you get it on that level, um, then it becomes doable, even if it's difficult. When it remains on the emotional level, I mean, the reality is emotions come and go. It's like feelings. I mean, you don't have a control over feelings. You have control of what you do about them. But, you know, I like to say sometimes love is a decision and a commitment. Um, and love is not necessarily the same thing as liking. Um, <laughs> and so if I begin to think, liking is a feeling, an emotional, it's a reaction. Um, love is a response that actually seeks the good and the welfare of the other as well as itself. Well, when 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 you do that, then it becomes a practice. So um, so that becomes part of my prayer life when I find it's difficult um, to love somebody um, or to to engage in the kind of love that is true justice and not just revenge in a social and political context. Um, that becomes part of my prayer life. That becomes part of my life where sometimes. Um, I, when in my prayer life, I'm asking God to help me to do it. But sometimes in my practical life, I say, you're going to have to help me. Uh, cause this is a hard, I'm having a hard time, uh, <laughs> loving you in this situation. Um, uh, or I'm having a hard time figuring out how I can get along with you. And I'm not putting that on you. I'm, I'm owning that for myself. So help me and give me some advice. Yeah. You see, my point is it's a very practical reality and, and to actually, um, I was interviewed a while back by a business magazine and um, the, the interviewer um, said, you know, everything you said sounds true, but how does it fly in the corporate world? And I said, well, translate the language slightly differently. Um, every decision that you make, if you ask the question, how does this impact me? Well, that's pretty self-centered, but how does this impact the greater we? 
other people when you're making a decision. Um, is this about me or we? Is this about narrow self-interest or is this about the greater good? That's where the moral question, you see what I'm saying? That's a practice. That's not a feeling. That's a that's a, an ethical practice for how I can make decisions along the way, as well as figuring out practically what do I need to do um, when I find it's hard to love you. <laughs> you <laughs> exactly. Know? Yeah. And, and when you put it in that way, it becomes something that we can do, not just feel and react. I love it. And it and it takes time. You need to put space, right, between yeah. the reaction to give yourself time to focus on how how do I consider the we and not just the me. And man, yeah. what you just said about prayer life, I will say the one prayer that I have experienced answered almost consistently is when I'm asking God to help me find some love for my fellow human um, in yeah, that it, moment when worked. I do it. <laughs> the Garden of Eden was paradise. I, I, I have a, a, a don't don't hold me to this, but I have a funny kind of theological understanding of the Garden of Eden issues. Um, it the 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 conflict had nothing to do with gender. The conflict had um, that the conflict had to do with numbers. As long as there was just one, uh, the one human being and God and the animals, everything was fine. But as soon as you have two, you got community, and in community. That's where the issue gets engaged. Is it all about me or is it about we? And really there's this idea, I think that we um, in our, maybe in our immaturity feel like everybody needs to see the world the way we see it and experience the world the way we experience it. And they all need to agree with me, like the way, you know, my beliefs and my feelings. And, and we've stopped learning how to really appreciate that, in fact, the diversity, the different viewpoints, you know, they may be totally contrary, but when we look for the, the instead of going with the either or, we look for the and, right? Like, and, and we can all be together and hold these very disparate beliefs. There, there's something really holy and special about that. Yes, it's, it's true. And, you know, and I, I mean, I, I've, you know, I mean, I'm 69, so I'm older than some, but not as old as others. <laughs> but, but the one thing, I mean, my kids and grandkids think, oh man, you're really old. We, that's a big number. But anyway, the, the, uh, I'm very aware that over the years, um, when I've had to make decisions in, as, as, a, parish, as a parish priest or um, as a bishop or even as a presiding bishop, those decisions have generally been better made, not, not perfect, nothing's perfect, only God is perfect, have been better when they've been made in some kind of community where, where I've gotten advice, listened to others' thoughts, kind of put it all together, kind of uh, almost like a jigsaw puzzle. Um, different voices help to get closer to the truth or the best way forward. Than, than just my voice, uh, no matter how exalted I think I may be, how, how brilliant I may think I am. Um, the truth of the matter is, I mean, I think there's a reason there are four gospels in the New Testament, not just one. Mm. I mean, I think that that's, there's a notion of four and the, 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 the world, that, that, that the village, I think it takes a village. I mean, the reality is Jesus, the Christ is so awesome and incredible. Why would we think one writer, <laughs> could get it. Oh, I love that. I've never, ever thought about that before, but that's true. You have four different perspectives 
and and how enriching that is in in our Christian experience. And we don't just have Paul; we get a little Peter and and whoever wrote Hebrews and James and you know in the epistles. So we've got we've got a smatter. We got different voices. The Hebrew scriptures, different voices. You've got First and Second Kings telling the telling the story of the the kings, and you've got First and Second Chronicles, which gives you a slightly different angle of vision. You, I mean, they they're telling similar stories, but from different perspectives. I love that. So I want to ask a little bit, you know, I, your book accompanied me through uh, my own, I had a big life transition. My, my mother w um, died last year from cancer oh, and I had your book with me um, mm. to read while I was in hospice with her. And mm. um, it was, it was a really, it was a lovely accompaniment and a wonderful reminder of this journey that we're on. I'd love to know in your own personal life, how have you experienced the power of love um, to heal to heal relationships and uh, people in your life? Well, I mean, probably the first one and maybe a defining, I guess, in many respects is in the book with the death of my mother when I was a yeah. kid. Um, and, um, and, and it, you know, kind of unfolded over a period of time. I mean, she had a cerebral hemorrhage and um, was, was in the hospital for, um, well, a good while, several months and then uh, moved to a care facility um, near us. And, and ironically, in those days, kids weren't allowed on the, on the hospital floor unless you, you were the patient. And mm. so my sister and I hadn't actually seen her. Um, I mean, at all, um, uh, we hadn't seen her. Although my father, I remember he took a Polaroid picture and I think he was trying to get us ready to seeing her unresponsive, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but uh, but that was as close as we could get. Um, so we didn't see her for, I, I don't know how many months it was. I see it, August. Well, I, t I do know, August, it happened in August. Um, she was able to go to the care facility in um, December. Wow. Um, and, and so it was the first part of the school year um, in the fall where we hadn't seen her. Um, and then there was another year, <coughs> excuse me, um, while she was basically in a coma for a number of years and then died um, um, after that. So there was a long period of kind of grieving, I mean, almost like prolonged hospice care, although it's conceivable, though remote, it was conceivable, though remote, that she could wake up, mm -hmm. you know, and come back in some way. I mean, every once in a while that happens, but that was, nobody held that out as a, realistic possibility we just said our prayers and left it there you know that kind of thing. yeah but walking through that journey it, it was kind of walking through the valley of the shadow the shadow of death not quite death yet but the shadow mm. which is as tough and maybe tougher yeah. than the actual reality you know i mean it's walking through that you know when you think about that walking through the valley of the shadow of death exactly that Oh gosh. I mean that I mean that's what you were doing walking with your mother. Yeah. Yeah. And um yeah, it is a, it's a place where there's a lot of fear. There's um a, some anxiety of not knowing. You know, it was the one time usually when people go into the hospital they go to get better and you're you know, you're helping nurse them back to health and it was such a strange thing to realize that it was it wasn't going to get better. <laughs> no. 
And and this was a long goodbye. It was a long goodbye. However long it was, it was a long goodbye. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It it just is. So that what and, and, and that whole time, I mean, what I became aware of, I was aware of it at the time, but it wasn't a conscious kind of um, thing. Um, was that my sister and I? And I, I don't know. You know, I wish I had had a chance. My father's dead now, so I can't uh, talk with him. Uh, to find out how did he walk through that internally, spiritually. I mean, I know how he manifested that for us as kids, but he was a father, a parent, doing what a parent does with their kids in our time. Uh, but I know that for us, the the sting of death when she died and the ambiguity of the shadow of death, of walking through that whole long period of time, was cushioned um, by people who loved us, cared for us, expected things out of us, didn't let us off the hook. You know what I mean? You still had to do your homework. Yeah, your mama's sick. Now do your homework. <laughs> you know no what excuses. I mean? <laughs> yeah. That that no excuses. Uh, you ain't getting off the hook. Uh, and what that does is that that almost affirms your dignity and affirms your capacity. To, to continue. I mean, and a funny guy, and nobody says that, but that's what that does. Um, and it cushions you and makes you stand up um, at, at the same time. And so I realized when I was writing the book, retelling that story, that that's <laughs> what love looks like. It's exactly. not mushy. It's not sentimental. This is strong stuff. I mean, you know, like it says in the Song of Solomon, love is stronger than death. Uh, many waters cannot quench love. And it's true. And it can help the process of of eventual healing over time. Um, but the scars are still there. Like Jesus, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, he still got the scars on his hands and his side. The scars are still there. And every I remember when I was a kid, um, through my early teen years, I could actually what I thought, hear my mother's voice in my mind. Mm. You know what I mean? It was just, I, I could just hear her voice. I don't remember saying anything specifically, but I could hear her voice. It's very distant now. I'm, I mean, I, every once in a while, I think I can hear it, but it's very distant. It's like an echo. Yeah. Uh, far away. Well, you know, I mean, again, all of that. So you never, it's never completely gone. Um, and, you know, there have been other tragedies and the same kind of thing, deaths and sickness and hardship and um you know it's you know it, it's the in the midst of life we are in death well I and i i've noticed with my own mom's passing is that her love is something that still i feel so very strongly within me right like i haven't i didn't lose her sense of love and so that no. that love it does it is so powerful and it does live yeah. on great it's legacy. real it's real it's real and it's not um it is a spiritual reality. I love that. And I also love what you just said about, look, I mean, love is no excuses. It doesn't, it doesn't let us just slip away. It recognizes our dignity and it plants and nurtures the seeds of hope for, yeah. for, for what's yet to come, right? You are so right. Yes, it, it really does. Um, 
it, it's it's not an accident that in the New Testament, in in First um, Corinthians, at the end of chapter thirteen, Paul says, "Now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love." But that he puts faith, hope, and love together. I love that. He puts them together. Yeah. That's the triangle or trinity of life that makes life livable no matter what life throws at you. It really does. And I think that that's such an important message for people to mm -hmm. grasp, especially when we're in the midst of a lot of despair. You know, I mean, I think people oh. feel really fed up with so much in this world um whatever their perspectives are and you know there's so much more here to bind us together and to give us hope for a future mm -hmm. it's really true it's really now we got some real problems i mean I, i'm not even <laughs> you know, kidding we got some real problems we got real we got some real problems in this country yeah we got some real problems in the global community um uh the the, the reality is um uh, i mean in, in a few days i'll fly off uh, with other bishops to, to to the Lambeth Conference in England, and um, they're having wildfires in Europe. Wow! And I've been to England yeah. a lot. I've never been to England when it was a hundred degrees. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I got is. no. I, I expect that here in North Carolina. <laughs> I don't expect that in, in Canterbury, England. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, much less France and Germany and Fran you know. What I, mean? I, I expect that when I'm um, in Sub-Saharan Africa. I don't expect that in Northern Europe. Right, right. Um, something's going on. We got some problems <laughs> and, and we haven't fixed them yet. No. Um, and, and it seems like really getting out of the, the me, the self-interest and really looking for the we is where we maybe can find some of the answers when we're very intentional and develop a practice around that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love I just I love your book. You give so many great examples in there of how you've seen love, you know, heal communities um, in your own experience. Can you share with us just a little bit uh, so we can kind of have a vision of hope as we as we bring our time together to a close? Yeah, you know, th I mean, there are, there are a number of of them, but I, I remember um, one in particular, and I think I talk about it near the it's near the end of the book. Um, when I was serving in North Carolina, as, as the bishop there, and a number of the Episcopal dioceses um, in the in the Southeast, primarily for a number of years uh, before I got there, had been sponsoring a, a, a retreat for uh, people who are HIV positive, had HIV AIDS themselves, or for their caregivers, and it was kind of a respect respite, kind of a rest, a break um, for for folk who were living with AIDS themselves, who had it themselves, or who were caring for those who were living with AIDS. And it was a full weekend at, at a conference center. Um, and and it was a weekend of meditations. And I mean, you know, I mean, I went a couple of times and, you know, gave kind of meditations, um, led prayer times, and uh, people got to rest. There was relaxation, recreation. Um, and then, um, on Saturday night, a, a, a healing service. Um, and uh, I had never been with, I mean, almost 200 people who were living with, 200 people living with um, 
profound suffering and hardship. This was in the early 90s or mid 90s, I guess. Uh, no, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, early 2000s, excuse me. Early 2000s who were living with with suffering. And, and I saw over that weekend that for for, for that period of time, it was like, I think this is what the Bible means when it talks about Sabbath, God's eternal Sabbath rest. Mm -hmm. um, experiencing something of that now. That for that weekend, um, the power of a community that prayed hard and the prayers there, I mean, the healing service was like two and a half hours. Um, the power of that community um, Almost, it made me kind of realize what St. Paul was talking about in Romans when he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this pleasant time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. I mean, it was almost, I mean, not almost, it was an experience for a moment um, of, of like my grandma, we used to say, resting in the arms of Jesus. You know, just sort of being in those almighty hands, all of us. And and while people, every once in a while, somebody would get sick and might have to be taken to the hospital. There was always a nurse, you know, medical team on site, you know, and somebody would get sick so that the, the you know, the virus would, would act up. But there was more power in the community to embrace that and to hold that. And, and in, in some sense, give some intimation of healing in the midst of that. And that was, as you said earlier, the catalyst for hope. Mm -hmm. And if you got hope, if you got hope, you, you can, as the old uh, man of Lamont, to march through hell for a heavenly cause if you have to. Mm -hmm. I love that. You know, what a great gift these moments are when um, God reveals himself in community and we can really anchor, uh, hold on to those as we as we go through some, some other times in life when it doesn't always feel so hopeful. It doesn't, yep. It's, I, it's amazing. All right, I'm just going to ask you one last question. For okay. those who are really struggling with broken hearts, what message uh -huh. of hope do you have for them? Don't quit. Keep going. But stop and pause and think. Well, let me say it this way. Uh, Mahalia Jackson used to sing. This is, I'm going back in time. But Mahalia Jackson, the old gospel singer from the 40s and 50s, and a little bit in the 60s. I'm, she was kind of retired by the 60s. But uh, she used to sing a song, How I Got Over, How I Got Over. And uh, when I look back and wonder how I got over, um, and it was a song about realizing that that she had been through hard times in her life. And at the time, she didn't know how she got over. But when she looks back and wonder, it's like, I was never alone. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes it's helpful to think, how have I gotten through hard times before? What did I do? What did I learn? Or if not me, how did someone I know? get through hard times, a, a painful time? What were the resources that they called on? You know, very, be practical. What, what, what was something I can do? Because there's something I can do. I will not give up. Something I can do, what is it to help me get over? And you know what? 
When it hurts, find help. Oh, yes. I think you say in your book something along the lines of um, suffering our solutions in disguise or something like that. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Problems, problems. Problems. Problems are solutions problems in disguise. Are solutions in disguise. They are. I, I heard somebody say that and I can't remember. It was so long ago. I don't remember who said it or what the occasion was, but I've never forgotten it. Yeah. Problems are solutions in disguise. And you know what? It's true. If you look for a perfect solution, well, you can look at vain. There are no perfect solutions to anything. But every problem is a riddle. And and you figure out the way to undo that riddle. And it may be something small that doesn't completely take it away, but helps you to get a grip on it for this moment. And sometimes that's enough for this moment. Um, like that old song used to say, one day at a time, sweet Jesus, one day <laughs> at a time. And you know what? There's wisdom in that. One day, one moment at a time, because um, the mountain is too hard to climb by taking on the whole mountain. You got to take it one step at a time, one day at a time, sweet Jesus. Amen. These are such great words to live by. I'm so thankful for you to for taking some time out of your incredibly busy schedule to visit with oh, us about love. It's a joy to be with. Thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for having me. Thank you. If you want to learn more about uh, Presiding Bishop Michael Curry, we're going to include a link to his bio and, of course, a link to the Episcopal Church where you can learn more there, too. And, of course, we hope you'll subscribe to our YouTube channel and uh, tune in for future episodes. Bishop Curry, again, thank you so much. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you.